am personally convinced uh, that the route out of polarization does not lie through avoiding a conflict because we've tried that and it doesn't work. It actually just goes underground and gets worse. But there are examples, and I've seen them in organizations, congregations, uh, governors, of people who are very clear about their own beliefs, about who they are and what they believe. Uh, and yet they're equally open to hearing others' perspectives, and they don't diminish or demean them. They, they honor the humanity of all those that they interact with, treating everyone with whom they interact with the dignity they deserve as human beings. That doesn't mean we respect their opinions, but I can still regard their humanity. I can still respect the fact, my own theology, that they are children of God, even if I profoundly disagree with their opinions on a particular topic. Hello there. I am Duncan Autry, and this is the Omni Win Project Podcast. This is the podcast where you can learn about the people, tools, processes, and ideas that are already available, the ones that can help us solve the crisis of our democracy and heal our political divisions. I am sharing all of these with you so that together we can transform our democracy and co-create a future where everyone wins. Unfortunately, we're not there yet. Polarization is tearing this country apart. 87% of Americans think that the country is more divided now than at any point in their lifetimes. 80% of people think that the other party poses a threat that if they don't stop it, will destroy America as we know it. And 70% think that our country is so polarized that we can no longer solve the major issues that we're facing. And they also believe that those differences are going to continue to grow. Now, there's one reason for this, and that is that we don't really know each other that well. A huge majority of people avoid talking about politics with people whose political views are different than their own. And 77% of Americans have few or no friends from the other side of the political spectrum. But even with all that said, a majority of Americans don't want it to be this way. 79% say that if they're given an opportunity, they would play a part in reducing social division in this country. And a huge majority say that they are interested in talking across the political differences if they knew that people could do it respectfully. Now, if you want to be part of healing our division, or if you want to bring respect and dignity into your conversations, then I've got you. In this episode, I'm going to show you how. In this episode, you are going to learn how. Now, I understand why the majority of people think that polarization is a threat in a country. The divisiveness right now and in democracies all around the world is absolutely terrifying. Every election, I care less and less about which party wins. And instead, I worry more about the quality of our political discourse and how we talk about each other. And as I pay attention to that, it is not good. The animosity and division that is coming from politicians and media is permeating all of our society. I hear the anger coming from the left and from the right, and it even is coming from my family and friends, and I bristle at it every time. This could be something that is pushing us apart, and for many families and friends, it does. But it doesn't have to be this way. Just recently, I was visiting my family, and I talked politics with my parents and my aunt and uncle for days. 
We had a wine-fueled political discussion over dinner. And I even took a five-hour road trip with my dad talking politics the entire way. And you know what? We're closer now than we have ever been. Now, I'm someone who's committed to reducing this political division. And I'm literally a professional at listening to other people. But even for me, this isn't easy. But I want you to know that it is possible. And in this episode, I'm going to share with you the best trick that I know for connecting deeply with those who see things differently. And this technique is something that I learned from today's guest, David Brubaker. David is a professor of sociology at Eastern Mennonite University, and he is the author of When the Center Does Not Hold, Leading in an Age of Polarization. In this conversation, we talk about the sources of polarization, and we talk about how serious and real the risks that polarization poses to our country. And we talk about the best strategies for living and leading in polarizing times, including his four-part technique for communicating with anyone across any differences. This conversation was recorded in 2020 from my previous podcast, Fractal Friends. And I am re-releasing this episode for you on Election Day 2022, just in time for the holidays, because I want you to hear his wisdom for communicating across our differences. I long for a country where we can be united in our diversity, and I'm joining the 75% of Americans who believe that it is still possible for the U.S. to achieve the ideal from our national motto, E Pluribus Unum, for many people one. If you also long for that dream to become a reality, you are going to love this episode. Thank you for listening to the OmniWin Project podcast, and please allow me to welcome to the show, David Brubaker. David, thank you so much for being on Fractal Friends. We met at the ACR, the Association for Conflict Resolution Conference in Tucson last year, and you've recently written a book called when the center does not hold, leading in polarization. Your experience in the background, as I understand, is working with polarization often in spiritual religious communities. But obviously this theme applies very much to the political landscape in the United States and actually the world right now. But I wonder if you'd be willing to just tell us a little bit about your background, you know, where you are and, and how you kind of got into this work. Yes, thank you, Duncan. It's an honor to be able to speak with you and really appreciate what you're doing with Fractal Friends. So I currently serve as the Dean of the School of Social Sciences and Professions at Eastern Mennonite University. It's located in Harrisonburg, Virginia, in the Shenandoah Valley of Virginia. But more than 30 years ago, I began working with Mennonite Conciliation Service in 1986 and became involved in the conflict transformation field at that point, doing a lot of interpersonal mediation, also working with congregations. And over the years since then, I have continued to consult with a wide variety of organizations, but probably 80% of my clients have been faith-based organizations and congregations. Probably the first time that I encountered a polarized congregation was in 1991, about five years after I started this work, I was based in Pennsylvania and worked with a congregation where there had been an allegation of sexual misconduct against the lead pastor. A colleague and I were co-consulting with the case, 
And we soon realized that uh, the allegations and the denial of the allegations by the pastor had polarized the congregation. About a third believed the complainant, uh, about a third believed the accused, and about a third were in the middle group that I came to call concerned and confused. But it clearly had created two very distinct camps uh, within that congregation. And we discovered that our normal tools of structuring dialogue were not very effective in this polarized situation. So that really started my quest to understand how do we deal with polarized systems, not just with normal conflict. I kind of want to pick up this theme of of Mennonites. John Paul Lederach is a hero of mine. And Mm -hmm. can you explain a little bit about who the Mennonites are and why they're doing peace work all the time? I mean, I remember Eastern Mennonite University being one of the only universities I know of that was first to really offer a conflict transformation program. Could you help me out with that background there? Sure. So John Paul Lederach was a co-founder of what is now called the Center for Justice and Peacebuilding at Eastern Mennonite University. Uh, As you obviously know, John Paul was a leader in the conflict transformation field throughout the 80s, 90s, and into the current era. And that program began in 1994 and has continued to the present, uh, now offering a master's in conflict transformation as well as a master's in restorative justice, given Howard Zare's significant work in, in that area. I would say Mennonites have a particular commitment to peace because we were part of what's sometimes called the radical uh, revolution in uh, Reformation, accurately, in Europe in the uh, 16th century, uh, that Mennonites were among the groups that were insisting that there should not be infant baptism, simply meaning that people should be allowed to make an adult decision about uh, what faith, if any, they chose to follow. And that they therefore were known as the Anabaptists, which literally means rebaptizers. That is now accepted in most Western democracies that there should be freedom of religion. But at the time, that was a fairly radical stance. So that's why they were considered to be part of the the Radical Reformation. When they came to America, uh, many came seeking uh, religious freedom as well as economic opportunity. And many came to Pennsylvania because William Penn the Quaker founder of uh, the colony of Pennsylvania at the time, was very open to religious freedom. And that's why you'll find uh, kind of the epicenter of Mennonite settlement from Europe in Lancaster County, Pennsylvania. That's fascinating. I was in the um, Peace Corps in Paraguay, and there's this one part of the country where it's pretty uninhabitable, but a huge population of German Mennonites were actually the first people to successfully populate that area. And they came to Paraguay because it was one of the few countries where there was not compulsory military service. And very interesting, there's like this little German-speaking corner of Paraguay there because of that historical piece. Um, thank you for that. Um, so today we're going to talk about polarization a bit. And obviously, you know, I appreciate even this comment that you said that like just the regular ways of dealing with conflict kind of fall apart there. And, and my guess is that that's like, once something has gotten deeply polarized enough, just the ability to even engage in conversation with each other gets undermined. But is that it? Or how can you explain to me a little bit about what happens in polarization that gets so difficult? So polarization is an expression of conflict, but it's at the highest end of the conflict spectrum. 
So you and I are both members of the Association of Conflict Resolution. Uh, we, I imagine we've both done a, a decent amount of mediation and other conflict consulting processes. And the tools that we learn in mediation and principled negotiation are very effective for, I would say, 90% of the conflicts that we deal with. So encouraging people to be hard on issues and soft on people and to have a clear BATNA, what's your best alternative to a negotiated agreement, and to be clear about the issues and encourage negotiation of the issues. Those tools all work very well for level one, two, and three conflict. As we get into, this is on a five level scale, but as we get into level four, particularly high level four conflict and level five conflict, the focus always shifts from what are the issues and how can we resolve them to who are the bad people and how can we destroy them? I mean, that's the nature of polarized thinking. And most conflicts never get there, either because they're resolved before they get to level four or five, or just as frequently because the parties split at level four. So before they can actually try to harm each other, a couple divorces or a, a religious congregation splits or sometimes a, a country experiences a split and forms two separate countries, as we've seen in Eastern Europe, for example. But if a conflict gets to a high level four, level five, we can describe it as polarized. And there's some very unique dynamics of a polarized conflict, which I'm happy to describe if that would be appropriate. Yeah, that'd be great. And I just want to, yeah, just say capture that the, there's this this like five levels of conflict. That was one of the things I learned in your workshop that I appreciated a lot. So I'll make sure that for those who are interested in looking at this levels, they can uh, find it in the show notes of this episode. Yeah, but go ahead and tell us what happens when we get there to the top of the conflict scale. Well, and I should probably give uh, credit to Speed Lees, who is the senior consultant for the Alban Institute, who developed these five levels of conflict some 40 years ago based on his own experience of working with multiple religious congregations, which is a, a fascinating place to learn about high-level conflict. But as I mentioned in the book, um, there are five characteristics that are pretty consistent, in my experience, with, again, these 10% at most of conflict cases that get to level five. And the first is personal attacks. If you are a leader in a polarized system, or if you are a member of one of the two tribes that tend to emerge in polarized systems, there will be a lot of personal attacks. You will feel it personally as a leader, as well as if you're a member of either of those groups. And as I mentioned in the book, leaders become the consistent targets of personal attacks, ranging from disparaging the leader's character and integrity to actual physical assaults. So there was a Republican congressman in the 1850s who was assaulted on the floor of the Congress by uh, a Democratic opponent from the South. At that point, the Democratic Party was uh, pro-slavery, physically assaulted almost to the point of death. That's an extreme example of personal attack. Uh, holy war, polarized individuals describe their conflicts in epic terms. So the language tends to shift from simply we disagree or we're in a conflict about something to this is a fight for the future of the country, fight between good and evil. That's fairly typical language in level five conflict, particularly. Distorted information. Information is used not to inform debate, but to vanquish opponents. And as we were talking earlier, 
it really doesn't matter what is being said in a polarized conflict. It only matters who is saying it. So I will trust it if it comes from Rush Limbaugh uh, at one end of the spectrum or Rachel Maddow at the other end of the spectrum, but I won't trust it from any other source because I've now put my faith in a particular source of information, not in looking objectively at the information. Fourth, relentless obsession that polarized individuals maintain an obsessive focus on the issues that concern them and the individuals or groups they oppose. So it's very hard for a system to move on to other topics because of this obsession. And then finally, intractable negotiations. And that's how Speed Lee's described level five. He simply said it's an intractable conflict. Compromise becomes unthinkable because negotiating with the enemy is seen as reprehensible. Mm -hmm. So it's hard to have successful negotiation when you basically see your opponents as totally evil. So those are the five characteristics. It's interesting. Like I think about how these, like they play together. So like once it becomes about the people, then that collapses the information. And then also like what you're even able to talk about. And something I noticed when I was reading your book was, that intractable negotiations become about everything because you have to negotiate with these people. And so, for example, the budget, like getting totally locked up in Congress a number of years ago or every year at this point, you know, like it's not, the budget is a relatively, I mean, I guess it has, it's full of issues. I think that's another part that's interesting is that there's this tendency for a bunch of issues to get bundled together. So whatever the issue could yes. potentially be, you know, like maybe I'm in the, you know, the conflict, you know, like the thing that got me to be on one side or the other was some sort of secular religious division or something. But once I do that, then I'm going to go ahead and join everyone who's on my side. I'm going to take all the issues. And, and I notice this when I speak with people in polarized tension or, or I get myself into those kinds of conversations that we can go from like one topic to the next topic to the next topic to the next topic as though all of them are somehow the same, even though we're not really talking about that. Yeah, very well said. So in a polarized situation, it actually matters less what the issues are and more who the people are that I choose to affiliate with. So I will have my reference group and I will take their side almost regardless of what the issue is. I'm not doing independent thinking. So an example would be in the recent pandemic, I remember talking to a friend in early April and she said, I'm just so happy that our country is coming together to fight this pandemic because if that's at that point, that's how it seemed. And I said, I really hate saying this, but it's just a matter of time until the polarized divisions in our country take over this issue because the polarized divisions at this point will be more important, sadly, than a global pandemic that we need to, to struggle against together. And within several weeks, that's exactly what had happened. So we have the pro-masking group and the anti-masking group. That simply reflects that any issue that comes into a polarized environment becomes entangled in that polarized environment. I remember hearing that there is research showing that people like will choose their party over their values, even at certain points, right? That, and you know, I've seen that happen where you know someone will take an issue about like a, a certain law. <laughs> And they'll be on this side when it's in favor of them. And they'll be on that side when there's a favor. And, and it's like literally the same people. We've seen various levels of that um, happening in this last 10 years or something. Yeah, the research that I saw was done in Israel and Palestine. And if they presented a proposal 
um, even if it had been drafted by Israelis, but if they presented it as if it had been drafted by Palestinians, it was immediately rejected by the Israeli participants and vice versa. So again, it doesn't matter particularly the substance of the issue or the negotiation that we're involved in. It matters far more which tribe I consider myself to be part of. Yeah, that's really interesting. You know, as the coronavirus hit, I remember having this like moment of hope that like here is actually like a crisis or some situation that that we can't scapegoat people around, right? I mean, we could you know, maybe like the pandolin and the bats, maybe you know. But if we don't have someone to scapegoat, then potentially we can all start coming together, as that person was saying. And it's been really interesting to see how that's it's become a focus point to have you know left right divisions about or you know across. I mean, left-right is just like a shorthand for this because we're definitely like, it's more complex than that. So there's also a feature of polarization. And, and you mentioned a little bit when that first congregation that you worked with that a third will be on one side and a third will be on the other side. And then a third is usually kind of in the middle or taking this. I think that's really interesting because it's not necessarily going to be split down the middle. It's like very rare that everyone takes one side or the other. There's usually a, a substantial part of the population that's there. And one of the questions I have about that it seems like, okay, there's the middle, but then there's also the sort of the whole, you know, I think as a mediator, we think about like taking that third perspective sometimes, right? Of like, I'm not trying to help you compromise here. Like, I'm really trying to get the both of you to have the best situation, that kind of omnipartial approach of, you know, kind of holding the, the, the whole unit. But yeah, anyways, I just wanted to like highlight that piece that like when something's really polarized, it's usually just still about two thirds of the population. That's certainly been my experience because I've been called into several situations as a conflict consultant where I was told going in, we are split down the middle 50-50. But when we did surveys or even multiple individual interviews or focus groups, we discovered that there always is a group in the middle that has heard from both sides and they're keenly aware that there is polarization in their system but it's not 50-50 polarization because even though they feel pressured to do so, they haven't yet chosen a side. Now that group gets much smaller over time. So the more polarized the environment, the smaller the middle. Mm -hmm. But in a normal system, you might have 10 to 20% on one end, 10 to 20% on the other end, but you're gonna have 60 to 80% in the middle. Mm -hmm. In a polarized system, you can have 30 to 40% on one end and 30 to 40% on the other. And that leaves a pretty small group in the middle. And that's what we're talking about. It could be as small as a quarter or a third that truly hasn't taken a side in high level polarization. Seems pretty close to where we are in the United States at least right now. I'm pretty sure there's that one number of Trump's approval rating that's exactly that number. It's about 35 right. to 40%, right? Yeah, it's about a third. And yeah. what statisticians say is that polarization is simply the thickening of the ends and the collapse of the middle in a normal curve. So mm -hmm. in any healthy system, if you will, we do have a normal curve. In a polarized system, that reverses itself and the ends thicken. That's interesting. So the normal curve would be like kind of like a bell curve kind of thing where like yeah. more or less people are even finding that we're coming together and it's the people of the outliers Smaller, smaller amounts at the edges and the, the, the extremes. So let's see, one thing I want to capture here also is the thing about polarization is that it's both <laughs> very old <laughs> and it's like an international experience. Like this is, I mean, of course, we're in the United States and um, 
But I know, I mean, I can think of dozens of countries right now that are having very similar polarizing experiences around similar issues as the United States. And so I don't want to just make it pretend like this is just us. But it's also interesting how it cuts across history. Can you tell me, remind me of like some of the times that we've been polarized in the past in this country? Sure. So the the three most significant, although a true historian, which I'm not, I'm a sociologist, but a true historian would indicate multiple other occasions. The three most significant, and I checked this with a professor of American history at my university, he agreed, were the American Revolution in the 1770s and even subsequent in the 1780s, when the loyalists or the Tories who wanted to remain uh, loyal to, to Britain were uh, in severe conflict with the patriots, those who wanted independence from Britain, so much so that about 80,000 of them, of the loyalists, fled the country uh, during or after the Revolutionary War. Surprising number went to Canada. Um, in fact, I have some distant cousins, Brubaker in Ontario, Canada, because that's where they went since it was still a British colony. And of course, in the 1850s, uh, leading up to the Civil War, there was an attempt to have a grand compromise, primarily focused on how to handle the states uh, at that point, at that time, the territories in the West, and which territories would be permitted to uh, practice slavery, which would not be. But that compromise did not obviously settle the issue. And by 1861, we, we had a shooting war. And then more recently, in just the last century, the 1960s, I think were a very significant time of polarization. I was born in 1957, so growing up in the 1960s, remember the severe conflicts over the war in Vietnam and even over the civil rights movement, uh, with some strongly supporting it and others strongly opposing it. And of course, the assassinations that took place in that decade of, of leading figures. So I think it's significant that those of us who are in the baby boom generation came of age during the 1960s and even into the 1970s with the continuation of the Vietnam War and, of course, Watergate. And there was polarization going on very early on for our generation. And now our generation uh, basically is running things, not terribly well, obviously. But the fact that the baby boom generation are now the leaders of industry, religion, uh, government, and that we have another significantly polarized time, I don't think is totally coincidental. I think our generation was polarized almost from its inception. Mm -hmm. Well, that makes a lot of, yeah, sense of just like being kind of like born into that polarization. And then we can feel the echoes of those, right? Like in my own family, I know that like my mom was a hippie because it was cool in California. And my dad was a hawk from the South and, wow. you know, and that, and that's me. That's how I was created. And I'm the conflict transformation person. Um, yeah, yeah. And, but it was, you know, but I could really feel that. Like I understood that tension from early on. So we can feel the echoes of that. And I could just like see the adults that are either like, we're the hawks or the doves, you know, at some point. You know, we think about like the causes of polarization, like we have this like historical context, right? We have this, you know, this history and these things that are like echoing forward. And then one of the, the great section of your book is about trauma and how trauma is the source of polarization. And I also just want to say that you have this like wonderful formula of like income inequality plus identity threat plus articulated grievance equals polarization, right? Like am I or my group feeling threatened? Like, is there actually some sort of inequality and then, like, is there something I can complain about or is there something we can talk about? 
And we can think about in income inequality as like this perpetuation of trauma. And I think that that's really interesting right now, especially as we look at some of the conflicts about race, but then also about statues and just how are we doing with our history, that we're actually having traumas playing out like across the spectrum on this. Like not only do we have the trauma of just like historical racism, the ongoing residue and echoing out of slavery and Jim Crow and but then we also have the trauma of the South of losing the Civil War. Like all of that's here in this mix where we have like traumatized groups interacting with each other. You know, it's not like it's a lot right there. Um, but it, um, <laughs> I know that being in Virginia, like that you're really keyed into like the history of the Civil War and slavery and how that's like echoing into our future. I wonder if you would be willing to talk about that a bit. Well, not surprising to me that you mentioned a number of issues together because they're all intertwined and we, we have to deal with them that way. So no groups have been more traumatized in American history than Native Americans and African Americans. So the, the legacy of genocide of Native Americans and of enslavement of African Americans uh, is something for which our, our country must repent. And I'm seeing some hopeful signs that we might at least be starting to be more honest about those legacies. So that's a huge legacy of, of trauma for those two significant groups. There are additional levels of trauma that take place at an individual level, uh, whatever our life experience has been. And as you mentioned, for uh, white Southerners, who just about every Southern family lost uh, a loved one in the Civil War. And here in the Shenandoah Valley, uh, General Sheridan went up and down the valley in 1864 uh, burning every barn, destroying every mill, killing all of the livestock, and basically people starved after that. Now, it was done to take away what really was the breadbasket of the Confederacy supporting Lee's army, so it certainly had a, a legitimate military objective, but uh, created um, generations of, of trauma for white Southerners uh, alongside the much more severe generational trauma for black Southerners. So we can't deny that these things are there. And it seems, we need more research on this, but it seems that trauma acts as a glue in our conflicts and embeds them and makes them more likely to escalate and become polarized. And that's why I asked two colleagues to write about that topic, one about the legacy of trauma and the other about resilience for leaders. But until we become honest with ourselves as individuals about what we've experienced, as trauma, and until we become honest as a country about the trauma that we have visited on significant populations in our own country, I don't think we'll ever be able to be completely free of this. It, trauma has become the glue that holds our polarization in place. Yeah. And I have a, a friend of mine that says, like, it's all trauma. <laughs> it's, there's a, a little bundle of podcasts that we get into the history of racism and one of the things that we talk about in a couple of them is like the trauma that happened to Europeans from other Europeans, like back 500, 1,000 years ago, the, you know, the killing of witches and sacred backgrounds. And so those cultures were destroyed so long ago that we barely even remember it. And that that trauma of that was then brought to the United States and made it easy to be like, oh, okay, well, I'll look at this forest and these people here, well, we'll just get rid of them because it already was there. And another colleague of mine talks about how it's like, we're just echoing out just this idea of just like ownership of land or of people, you know, it, like 
that isn't a natural thing for us to be doing, but that's something that, like, that poison is sort of echoing out. And it's, there's something about, in a, you know, like, in addition to this, like, the obvious, obvious, you know, horror of, of slavery, that, you know, that the South was also, like, this vanquished party. And I was at a workshop or Mediators Beyond Borders conference, and it's a gentleman from East Timor, and he said this thing that really struck a chord. He's like, I think the real trick is like once you have defeated your enemy and they are on their knees and defeated, like that is the point where you need to give them like so much compassion. And that's like something that we we suck at at war. I mean, it's just never, you know, like that would have helped us in Iraq. That would have helped us in so many different places to like vanquish an enemy and then have compassion for them. And it's hard. It's really hard. And especially when we can say in this in the civil war where this is like it was about slavery and there's a very there's a very um there was a just cause that was being fought there and um but what i want to just kind of point out and this is like in the in the chapter by carolyn yoder um with about trauma she talks about the star model which i think seems like it's also connected to emu yes and strategies for trauma awareness and resilience and there's this cycles of violence, and I'll get I'll put these in the show notes for this episode. But it's really interesting how there can be this dance where like the victim, there's a victim cycle and an aggressor cycle. But the difference between the victim and the aggressor is who's basically acting out and who's acting in. So like the victim is someone who's putting like who's the pain of reaction to trauma is happening to themselves. And then the aggressor cycle is it's happening to someone else. And that when we go instead of to revenge, instead of justice, the victims become the aggressors and the aggressors become the victims. There's this dance that happens there. And they also have a, a chart, which I ended up finding online, about like how do we get out of these cycles? And what you talked about, you know, it's like acknowledgement first, like as you were saying, like first we have to acknowledge what's happening here. Then there's mercy and then there's like justice and then we can start figuring out how to rebuild things. Um, I wonder what other things that you learned about, you know, or like that you thought were kind of essential to these like cycles of trauma and cycles of violence that we have. Yeah, STAR is indeed a, a program of EMU and Carolyn was the founding director. So I was pleased to have her write this chapter. And some people in response to trauma, primarily acting in, which in an extreme case could be suicide. Some in response to trauma act out, which in an extreme case could be homicide but it continues the cycles of violence. And so I'm, I'm glad you found what we sometimes call the snail model that shows how to escape from either of those two cycles. And it's not an easy escape. It is uh, the hard path of choosing to honestly confront what has happened and to avoid what we tend to call in trauma response that sometimes comes naturally to folks creating either a, a victim narrative, chosen traumas that we're identifying with, or uh, what we sometimes call chosen glories. And that really is what led to all of the statue building in the South, in my opinion. It came out of a traumatized white Southern population wanting to idolize its glories, what they saw as its glories, in terms of the generals who they had seen as heroes. And in a healthy society, 
we don't have a need to dwell on our chosen traumas and our chosen glories. But when we're seeing that happen, it's telling us that we haven't yet resolved uh, that trauma. So even for white Southerners, as I was saying earlier, the uh, spate of statue building wasn't only an expression of white supremacy, which I do see it as. It was also an expression of chosen glories, which tells us that their trauma has not yet been addressed. Mm -hmm. Wow. Just I could really... I'm interested in my personal life, which just I can really feel like the moments of, but just for everyone like that, the cycle between like shame and ego, you know, or the cycle between yeah. shame and pride, you know, like, and there's like yeah. that, it's like they like, they'll balance each other out if they are, if, if like one is untrue, then the untrue mirror will happen as well. Right. So if it's like, I feel really right. bad. Um, about something, then I'm going to like really focus on what I feel really good about. But if I'm like really focusing on what I feel good about, then I'll like check myself by like feeling, you know, and it's hard because like as, you know, like as the wheel turns, it's easy to get on the other side of that. And it's like hard to actually find that just like that center, you know, or the, or the spiral. I just want to also highlight, I just, I had recently heard a podcast by Resma Menicum, who I think is the, the author of My Grandmother's Hands. And yeah. And I'm going to make sure there's links for that. It's really amazing work there. But it says the trauma of race is in our bodies and that's going to need to be recognized before transformation. So there's also this way that it's actually just built in. I mean, we have epigenetics. We just like, we are actually, you know, I, mean, I remember hearing him talk where he was saying that if someone who's been traumatized by violence, um, he specifically talks about like um, darker skinned people that like, they're constantly actually like checking out their space. Like, am I going to be safe here? Am I going to be safe here? Am I going to be trapped? And that just like that, that's just built into this experience and that you actually are going to have to find that in your body and and address it. Well, on that point, I remember talking to a friend several years ago when there was video of an African-American man stopped by the police who then turned and ran and the police shot him in the back and he died. And the friend said, why would he run from the police? And my response was, why would he not run from the police, given not only the epigenetic uh, transfer of trauma, but his own lived experience? So we have to recognize when trauma is at play in a lot of these interactions. And the police themselves, I think, often acting out of an unhealed trauma core. Okay, so polarization runs deep. We've <laughs> yeah. established that. Okay, and it's dangerous and it can become intractable. What do we do? How do we lead in polarization? My favorite part is just this piece about just like embrace your humanity, like you know, just be you. Yeah, I am personally convinced that the route out of polarization does not lie through avoiding a conflict because we've tried that and it doesn't work. It actually just goes underground and gets worse. But engaging conflict, particularly when it's small. So if we can engage conflict at the more manageable levels, those levels one, two, and three. Level one, where dialogue is very effective. Level two, where negotiation is very effective. Level three, where having a third-party mediator is very effective. The vast majority of our conflicts never need to get to level four and five. If they do get to level four and five, then there is a certain kind of leadership that's required. And it certainly is not the kind of leadership that throws gasoline on the fire, as we've seen in several countries around the world, including our own. That kind of leadership makes everything worse. It's polarizing leadership. But there are examples, and I've seen them in organizations, congregations, governors, 
of people who are very clear about their own beliefs, about who they are and what they believe. And yet they're equally open to hearing others' perspectives and they don't diminish or demean them. They, they honor the humanity of all those that they interact with. And so here's where Donna Hicks' work on dignity, I think, is really important for leaders. She wrote an initial book on dignity and the second one, Leading with Dignity, which I'd especially recommend, Donna Hicks, H-I-C-K-S. And she talks about the importance of leaders treating everyone with whom they interact with the dignity they deserve as human beings. That doesn't mean we respect their opinions. There are times when I find it impossible to respect those who have opinions that seem to be based on conspiracy theories, for example. But I can still regard their humanity. I can still respect the fact, my own theology, that they are children of God, that they are here through the intervention of the divine, and that I want to respect the light of the divine that's in each one of them, even if I profoundly disagree with their opinions on a particular topic. Mm -hmm. When I talk about effective listening, I in this model of acknowledge, reflect, and be curious, right? ARC. Mm -hmm. right? Nice. And yeah. acknowledgement's kind of empathy, but empathy can be tricky because it seems like I have to have the same experience as you to have empathy. It's not necessarily true, but that's the story. And what I'll point out is like acknowledging, just acknowledge the person's human experience. And so when I'm working with someone who I'm like totally disagree with, I can at least look and say like, wow, I see that you're really scared about this. Or I see that you're really freaked out. Or like this is, you know, or you're really excited right now. Or, you know, and and um, I see you, you care about this a lot. And I can at least acknowledge that there's a person in front of me, it's a human having an experience. And I can at least recognize that emotional thing, even though I'm like, wow, this is bonkers. You know, like I'm like not really listening to what, I'm not agreeing with your words. So that acknowledgement can be really powerful for remembering that inherent human dignity. And I love how you say in the thing where it's also about like, recognizing your own dignity. We have to be in touch with our own voice. And you know, and that you said that there with that leadership where it's like, you have to be clear about your own opinion. Being a leader in polarization doesn't necessarily mean you'll be neutral about it or not have an opinion or avoid stating your opinion. It's about saying, this is what I believe. And from here, I'm still willing to talk to these other folks. That's it. In fact, the leaders that fare the worst in polarized systems, and I've seen this play out time and time again, are those who remain steadfastly neutral, because then they are despised by both sides. They are seen as weak and unprincipled by both. And it actually, leaders fare better when they're able to say, this is who I am, this is where I stand. This would be Martin Luther King's response, for example, and yet I choose to love those who disagree with me. That's the combination that is actually most effective in a polarized situation. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and it's interesting, I think, you know, I also just really want to pull out the advice of engaging with conflict when it's still small. You know, as a mediator, I, I, I talked about, actually, it's really interesting, and this really fits into the five levels here. I talked about this imperceptible line between it's no big deal and it's hopeless. <laughs> <laughs> and that people will, you know, when I talk to people about a conflict they're having, and I was like, wow, you know, here's some ideas about help with this. You know, I'd love to get a mediator to help you with that. And they're like, no, nah, it's no big deal. We got it. I'm just going to talk to them a little more. And then a couple months later, how's that going? And it's like, well, we broke up the organization. We, you know, don't ever want to talk to each other again. Yeah. And then it was like, well, when did you cross the line? And it's like, and our work is like conflict resolution or transformation folks, your engagement, whatever management <laughs> is to expand that line so that we can say, look, your situation is a big deal. 
and it's not hopeless. You really are dealing with a fundamental issue here, and you can handle it. You can figure out a way to do this. So it's a little bit like expanding that level three level, you know, like, like before you cross into the holy war, make sure that you pay attention as it escalates. Hi, I just wanted to chime in for a moment to say that if you're enjoying this conversation, then you are going to love all the other content that I prepared for you as part of the OmniWin project. There is a lot more than just a podcast. There are videos and essays. And in fact, right now I'm wrapping up a long series about how to live in complexity. There are over 20 podcast episodes with amazing guests, and there are more to come. And there is one place where you can find all of them. And that is at omniwin.substack.com. Go check it out. You can read and watch and listen to all of it online, or if you like, you can subscribe so that all of it is delivered directly to your inbox as soon as it comes out. And now, stay tuned. David's strategy for communicating with others in the face of division and polarization is coming soon. Thank you for listening, and now back to the conversation. But what's interesting, though, is just like, now that we're past in... in at least in some of our political discussions, like we're past the level, <laughs> we're in the upper levels of conflict now. This idea of just like speak your truth, but then maintain the connection. Like that's helpful. That's it. That's, I think, helpful for individuals, for anyone, right? I mean, at any scale, that's like helpful. And this was the basic principle of family systems theory that was pioneered by Murray Bowen and others, uh, applied to faith-based organizations by Rabbi Friedman. And what it really says the core principle is self-differentiation. And it basically says self-define, let people know who you are, get clear in your own mind about who you are and what you believe, and stay connected. So I'm just paraphrasing what what you had said earlier. Self-define and stay connected is the best stance for a leader in almost any situation, because if a leader fails to self-define, again, they will be perceived as unprincipled and weak. And however, if they self-define and refuse to listen to those with a different perspective or worse yet, demonize them, then they become hated by anyone else that doesn't share their perspective. So it's self-defining and staying connected and maintaining that respect for the basic human dignity of other human beings. Mm -hmm. By the way, your uh, comment earlier about how can we respect the different life journeys that people have been on? Reminds me of a time that I went to Philadelphia. This was probably 33 years ago. Went to uh, the Good Shepherd Mediation Center for mediation training. And I don't remember the name of the trainer. I remember he was Quaker. But he said something that has stuck with me for 33 years. And it was, whenever you're in dialogue with someone and you're having trouble understanding their position and you profoundly disagree with it, use this question, quote, can you help me understand what it was in your life experience that led you to take the position you now hold? Mm-hmm. That's an extremely useful question. And I've used it in a number of one-on-one conversations as well as in mediation. Can you help me understand what it was in your experience that led you to take the position you now hold? And I've heard some incredibly heart-wrenching stories in response to that where people start crying. And then it makes sense to me even though I'm at a very different place, perhaps because of my own life experience, but they've revealed something of of their experience that led them to take that unusual, from my perspective, position. I'm familiar with that question as well. I learned about it through 
Essential Partners, which used to be the Public Conversations Project. And I uh, recently heard one of my colleagues, Ken Cloak, talk about that. And it's a powerful question, again, for those who didn't catch it. You know, the question is, and you can, there's variations of it, but you can just have a conversation. Each person tell a story from their life experience to explain how they got to feel what they feel about whatever the issue is. And that could be a real powerful question in like a circle process where everyone gets a chance to answer it. And Ken Cloak said this thing, if you have a group of people, you could ask a question about who's the tallest person here? And there's only one right answer to that question. <laughs> right. And then you could have, what is your height? And then there's multiple answers, correct answers to that question. Each person can say that. But then you could ask each person in the group, tell me what it feels like to be the height that you are. And then now you've stepped into a qualitative thing where there's infinite correct answers that are undebatable. And it's similar to this idea of like, yeah, it's like, what does this mean to you? Why is this important to you? And all of this is about kind of getting down to those underlying needs. Yeah, it's positions, interests, needs. And Mm -hmm. when we get to human needs, we discover that there's not only an infinite variety of answers, but they're all compatible. Exactly. Yeah, I'll definitely put, like I'm always linking to um, lists of human needs and universal human needs and some information there. So there's this piece then, so like about communicating across the difference. I really appreciated the chapter by Everett. Is that your son, by the way? Yes, Yeah. he did a great job with that chapter. Yeah, um, about communication across polarized things. And a part that I appreciated, and I remembered this from a, a, there was a TED Talk that I saw by this guy named Rob Willer, about how to bro- fix our broken conversations. Yeah. But the idea is that, like, remember that if you're talking across the political spectrum, you're dealing with different value bases. And to communicate with a person based on their values, not your values. And so in this TED Talk, he talks about how, like, the left has, like, fairness, equality, care, compassion. These are the core things. While the right is focused on loyalty, patriotism, respect for authority, purity. So if you want to talk about the environment, talk about like what's good for our country, how can we keep the land pure, like what is the right rule of law, like how can we be proud of the place where we are, that's going to get people to be excited about the environment rather than saying some conversation about environmental justice, for example. And and that the right could potentially speak to the left by talking about like, hey, you know, like here's what we think is fair and caring and, you know, compassionate. Yeah, you summarized very well the importance of framing. And Jonathan Haidt talks about that as well in terms of the different values that connect with different ends of the spectrum. Uh, Everett also addresses the importance of the messenger and makes the observation, I think he's spot on, that our current polarization around climate change would not be so intense had Al Gore partnered with a conservative on the Oscar-winning 2006 documentary, An Inconvenient Truth. Mm. So again, in any polarized environment, it's far less important what is being said than who is saying it. So if we could have had a bipartisan presentation of the need to address climate change back in the 90s and 2000s, we might be at a different place than we are now. Oh, that's really interesting. Because we get to that level of polarization, the people are going to want to destroy the messenger, but they can actually hear the message from someone who they can respect. Um, that's it's really useful thing to think about. I think there's like something about living in polarization also that seems like it's important to recognize like this importance of recognizing our interdependence. And this is actually why it's so painful. Just like remember that the reason why it's actually important to like establish that connection with someone is because 
you are connected to them. It seems like you've heard, since you wrote your book, that you've heard a lot of people asking, talking about like personal experiences with polarization. And what are some of the things that you're talking to those people about? Well, what I often hear from people are complaints about the media, including social media. And I fully understand that uh, those complaints are legitimate. They're not fully explanatory because the country has been polarizing since the late 1970s. And that was well before social media was on the scene or even some of our current 24-hour so-called news networks like MSNBC and Fox. So I think we have to take a deeper dive into why is the country polarizing now, or for that matter, why did it polarize in the 1850s, uh, certainly before the media, at least uh, the current media, was a factor. There were some sharply divided newspapers back then. So that's why I was looking seriously at both uh, identity threat, when I feel that, that my identity is under siege in some way, and also economic stratification. So what's really changed over the last 50 years since 1970 has been the divide between the rich and the poor. It has grown dramatically in this country, and our polarization has pretty much correlated with the growing divide between the rich and the poor. That also relates to identity threat, because if uh, my father had worked in the Buick plant and I saw myself working in the Buick plant and then there's no job, for me, or I'm paid a fraction of what my father would have been in real wages, I can understand why people start getting desperate and looking for alternatives. And when someone articulates that, this is why an articulated grievance is so important, and says either the Chinese and the immigrants are responsible for what you're experiencing, and I respond to that, or the corporations and the billionaires are responsible for what you're experiencing, and I respond to that. That's when we start to see uh, growing polarization around political uh, spheres because the different parties are articulating different reasons for this reality. Unfortunately, at least to this point, neither one has been able to effectively put forward and implement a solution to growing stratification. So it continues to happen, continues to divide the country, but people focus on symptoms rather than causes is my concern. Hmm. And certainly the media makes it worse. There's no question that social media and especially the 24-hour so-called news networks have worsened things. Yeah, it's interesting because the source of the problem and the actual, and what we're seeing the problem look like. So like looking at the media is actually we're just seeing something that's manifesting, you know, or I mean, I think that was something that was very clear for me in the last presidential election was that like this is a symptom of something bigger, you know, like, like this is a, already a division that's here and now it's laid bare and this grievance was already available. What's interesting is that I'm noticing that we can have a articulated grievance, we can be polarized about the grievance, but it's interesting that we're not talking about a lot of solutions. You know, I think about this a lot, having been, you know, like steeped in protest and activist culture a lot. And I remember just kind of getting to this place of like, wait, we're like anti-everything. Like, <laughs> what are we actually proposing here? Like, is there an end game that we're talking about? Like, what, what's that? What are we building towards? And that's important. I mean, it's important to understand what the challenge is and what the problem is and something you want to get rid of. 
Well, it's where we tried to end this little book because we have to have some way forward, some sense of hope. But you might remember that I started it with the nested model, that what's going on inside of me intrapersonally, what's going on between you and me interpersonally, what's going on at the subsystems that we're part of, our communities, our organizations, and what's going on at the macro system, our society, even the global system these days. All of those are interconnected. And so we need strategies that address all four of those levels. So what can I do personally within myself? What can I do in my relationship with you and others? What can we do within our communities and organizations? And what can we do within our country as a whole? Until we address all four of those levels, I don't think there's going to be an exit. By the way, the way polarization ends is either there's a complete split and party A and party B never talk to each other again, or there is a violent conflict and then a split. You know, those are the two paths that we've seen in our own history and the history of other countries, either a relatively nonviolent split or a violent exchange and then a split uh, if the polarization is not addressed and resolved prior to that. Do we have any examples of the path where things come together? I mean, did we have the integration place like option? <laughs> well, We have the example of Czechoslovakia, which was a a single country through the Cold War and then became the Czech Republic and uh, Slovakia. And that was done nonviolently. And I think the two countries have an ongoing peaceable relationship. So it doesn't mean that there has to be a violent conflict by any means. But can there be reconciliation prior to a polarized split or violence? Yes, there can be but it would require de-escalation. And de-escalation normally only happens when there's leadership for de-escalation. It requires what we often call a cooling off period in international conflict, or we might consider to be a separation in a troubled marriage where the parties just cool down, just spend six months uh, or a year or whatever it takes to de-escalate the conflict. Otherwise, every time we're together, we just hurt each other even more. So quite frankly, our country needs a cooling off period right now, and it will require leadership to bring that about. And not just leadership at the local community organizational level, it will require national leadership that cools things down. Mm -hmm. That will be absolutely necessary if we're going to avoid the other two extremes I mentioned. Oh, man. Um. (laughs) Well, and again, when you have a leader whose instinct is to throw gasoline on the fire, a cooling off period is just impossible. So it would require a different kind of leadership going forward. Absolutely. And it's not just about trying to force everything back together again either, because that's, again, that like that leadership that's not being principled, you know, that you're not speaking the kind of leadership where you're not speaking your truth. So just to like summarize this, because it, it's really important, we need to get the layers of escalation down, right? So we're going from like we're level four or five, we need to get down to a place where we're back not doing personal attacks, and we're actually talking about real issues, and we're concretely there. And that's a place where we can actually figure out how to work together. Well said. And then, you know, I want to capture again that this is, it's a fractal. <laughs> it's happening at all different levels here, that we have like this person, we have this internal experience, we have this interpersonal experience between people, we have that happening in our organizations, and our communities, our states, our nation, and our world too, I suppose. And If I'm in a fight with my girlfriend, you know, like we get there and I notice that like 
neocortex has come offline. I'm running on amygdala and I'm like going at the, you know, and I'm ready to, to do a fight, flight, freeze thing. I know that like the, what I want to do is say, hey, let's take a break and then we're going to talk in a half hour. Breathe into it and come back together. Or, you know, and if things got really rough, maybe we need to take a week off or more time. So it's interesting to think about how that's something that would need to happen on a larger scale. And I just really love the speech, you know, like the presidential speech or the, you know, whatever, the leader, whoever the leader could be at this point, coming out and saying, okay, everyone, let's all just take a pause here for a minute and let's just get our ducks in order. And I mean, it's kind of, it seems like there's such a great opportunity right now that like we're all actually taking a pause and we're all locked in our houses that we actually could like actually take a chill out time. I think that's well said. If you're familiar with the research of the Gottman Institute, where they've studied hundreds of couples, and they can now predict with, I think, 80 or 90% accuracy, which couples will end up divorcing, which will not. And the key is contempt. If they sense contempt between the two individuals, which uh, they define as fueled by long simmering negative thoughts about one's partner and rising in the form of an attack on someone's sense of self, it's far beyond criticism. It's contempt. And if you listen to our national discourse right now, there is so much contempt from the left and the right that it indicates that we're headed for a divorce unless there is some kind of de-escalation. And yes, that does require leaders who know how to de-escalate. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I really appreciate this. Towards the end of your book, when you really get into the how do we like transform the conflict, and you know, this like one of the things we could do as individuals is refuse contempt honor dignity and like expand what our sense of the binary is um and this refusing contempt like it's it's like one thing to say i disagree with something someone but to feel contempt for someone or to like hate them or there's got to be some wise quote about there about how like you know like contempt or, or hatred you know is actually only harming you anyways but it's actually harming the whole system in my own theology i take Jesus' teachings very seriously, which summarized would be uh, love God, love your neighbor, and love your enemies. And the first two aren't terribly challenging, but the third one really is. And I think that's where we look to people like Gandhi and Martin Luther King, who attempted to live out that teaching in practice. And it's costly because just because I'm trying to love my enemies doesn't mean they're going to love me back. Yeah, man, letter act is really present for me right now. In this book, The Moral Imagination, you know, he talks about what the moral imagination is. And like, and one of the levels of that is to like imagine yourself in a web of connections that includes your enemies. And this is about that interdependence. It's love your enemies as if they were you or your own family because they actually are. <laughs> you know, because they are, yeah, yes. And Oh, that's the hard part. Yeah, yeah. I mean, especially when we have a hard time loving our own family sometimes, you know. <laughs> but there is, I mean, I think that's the piece, though, is like actually getting into relationship or like deepening relationship, getting into connection with people is this key piece. Um, just in the most recent podcast interview that I recorded with Ashok Panikar, he told this story about this person had a very religious, you know, evangelical person put a, made a painting that was very controversial and it got into the Smithsonian and then there was protests about it. And he met with him and he helped with like some sort of mediation around it. But then he ended up like hanging out with him and having Thanksgiving with him and 
And they had this, just couldn't agree about anything. It was like nothing that they had a similar value structure about. But as humans, they totally were able to get along. And that was something that he was able to just like find that piece of respect. And so I think that there is like, you know, as folks are trying to grapple with polarization, being in relationship, like cultivating relationships, finding the dignity of other people is like such a key piece here. Yeah. I think you put your finger on the most key piece, at least for us as individuals, the starting point is to treat ourselves and others with the dignity that we all deserve. Yeah. You laid out sort of like three potential approaches on how we kind of like get out of this polarization in, in, in U.S. politics. And again, this totally could apply to any other country. One of them is like we can change the political culture and structure, yeah. you know, multi-party system or you know, who knows? We can get the, the politicians could start being really nice to each other or something, you know. We could change our social religious culture so we can actually just like there's something about just the way we interact with each other. Or we could like actually be working on rebuilding civil society and like bringing things to like this local level and like actually like doing the transformation in our communities that we can start doing. And I really appreciated that because I I kind of came to that seems like your thought was that rebuilding civil society might be the most accessible one. Yes, for most of us. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I mean, I've noticed that myself too, that it's like trying to figure out how to sort out national politics is a massive undertaking. But what's a local issue or a local group? Or I mean, how can we, I don't know, there's something about working with your community and in your situation and talking across differences there that seems so powerful. I just want to see like, what were some of your other like features of like things about transformation? Like what ways that we can maybe change the situation? Well, as we were saying earlier at the individual level, the most important thing I can do is a commitment, make a commitment to respect the dignity of every human being, including myself. I think that would begin to shift a lot at the local level. The most important thing that, that I can do is to commit to work with others of my neighbors in uh, projects and programs and initiatives that are meaningful to other members of our community. And I've done that in three communities, uh, Lancaster, Pennsylvania, Casa Grande, Arizona, now here in Harrisonburg, Virginia. But the story I would share is from here in Harrisonburg, and I mentioned in the book, a group called Faith in Action that pulled together 24 congregations, including our local mosque and our local synagogue, and our local Unitarian Universalist congregation, as well as 21 other Christian organ congregations, pulled them together to work as a collective on issues that were important to our community. We're a community of about 50,000, two universities here in town. And the first that they focused on five, six years ago was immigration. And Harrisonburg became a welcome America city, uh, a city that's openly welcoming to immigrants and refugees. And the second that they focused on was criminal justice reform. And the city and the county collaborated after encouragement from Faith in Action to hire a community justice planner to move things in a more restorative direction, less punitive. And currently, what we're prioritizing is affordable housing. And there's a, a focus on creating a housing trust fund so that we could support low-income renters who aren't eligible for Section 8, but also don't have the income to afford uh, rental rates here and perhaps even home ownership. So I've seen over the last five, six years, this faith-based organization, very interfaith, 
but faith-based organizations bring about real change in three significant areas, immigration, criminal justice reform, and now uh, hopefully affordable housing. That gives me hope when I despair at what I see happening in Washington, D.C., I can focus on my own community and actually be quite hopeful about the future. I just like the part of that where it's like, I actually have a living example in my life that this could work, you know, so that, you know, like there's that anchor. Yeah. And it's interesting that like, I think I'm noticing a question I want to ask that kind of popped up a couple times in this. Obviously, like a lot of your background is working with congregations and you're a man of faith. And there's interesting that there's like a certain advantage to having a faith-based structure around you that, you know, like one, I noticed that first of all, there's God, which can carry some of the weight. (laughs) It's not just all on your human (laughs) shoulders. Then there's some story of unity, right? I mean, it's like, you know, like there's a, you, you can get to the story of we're all one through science very easily, but it's not a very common story. It's not a thread that people follow very often, but the sense that we're like, we're all one. And obviously religion has plenty of division, <laughs> sort of causes plenty of division in this world. But that there's this also this like, you know, it brings in certain morals or ethical values or even just this idea of service. And, um, and Jesus is, you know, he's saying like, you know, love God, love your neighbor, love your enemy. And, like you have that anchor there. And so I'm curious if you have thoughts for folks that have more secular background, because I do notice that one of our challenges is that we don't really have a, we're less and less having like a moral structure that we can all rally around. You know, it's, it's, I'm just curious if you have any like reflections on for folks that maybe, you know, don't have a faith community that, to connect with. Well, it's a great question. I, want to first respond uh, to those who do have a faith community and then answer the second part of your question. Oh, thank you. <laughs> so Robert Putnam, uh, when he wrote Bowling Alone in 2000, which was about the decline of social capital, uh, really insightful comment early on in the book. He says, congregations, religious congregations of every stripe are the greatest repository of social capital in the country. So there's no other place that gathers as many people on a weekly basis as do religious congregations. So I've been part of faith-based organizing in three different communities because there's no better way to organize people. If they're part of a congregation, they're part of a community, and they tend, not always, but tend to care about that community. And so we can organize people, we can organize money. This is why the Southern Christian Leadership Conference under Martin Luther King was so important. It was the organizing base for the civil rights movement. So mm-hmm. we can't discount the value of religious congregations. Again, um, I've worked with uh, Hindu ashrams. I've worked with synagogues. I've worked with the range of Christian congregations. To me, the faith base itself is less important than the fact that people are part of a faith community because that becomes a natural place to organize. Secondly, for those who uh, do not profess the faith or do not belong to a religious community, every human being that I've ever met has a spirituality that they hold on to, and they're part of other significant communities. So what are those communities, and how do we organize in that sphere as well? If the goal is to do positive things for our broader community and for our country, we draw on wells of spirituality and religion. And we draw on faith communities and other communities. Yeah. That may not be a satisfactory answer, but it's the one I have. Well, I have the advantage. I'm part of the community in um, the Bay Area called Thrive East Bay. And 
it's basically like a secular faith-based community. It's, I mean, it's basically mm-hmm. like, like we don't have any religion or anything like that, but we are very, very consciously using the model of church and temple and um, mm-hmm. to create a space where people can come together, build a community, and it's a purpose-driven community, and the values are um, thriving lives, uh, love and action, systemic change, and... Um, community, something a community building one, and it's really amazing. It fills this this gap for folks that you know have maybe left the church for some reason or another, but still want that kind of community, or people who are still very much in, on their own religious spiritual path and just want to be engaged, you know, with a, a you know an organization that's doing community building and change. And actually, what's really interesting is, you know, it's only been in the East Bay until now, but it's accessible online now because that's how we're doing things. So I'll make sure there's links mm-hmm. for Thrive East Bay here in the Excellent. in the um, in the things um, in the notes. But I do like I like your point though that everyone has, you know, some kind of spirituality. Even an in, in atheist has, you know, like or, or someone in mean, science is its own kind of spirituality. And absolutely. Personally, I find like many paths to God. You know, <laughs> like oh, sure. man, I could just like I mean, just being in a thirteen and a half billion year old universe. That's all that we don't really know where it came from. That's expanding into nothingness. You know, it's, 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 that'll put me in awe at any moment. Um, or just being part of this living planet. Just it's a lot. And but I think that whatever your space is, whether it's like sports or you know music or drama or whatever your thing is. Like there's space there to be working as a community and trying to be of service and and making and being aware of how you're participating in the bigger story. Yes. By the way, it's uh, back to our conversation on basic human needs. Every human being has a need for meaning making and to be part of some meaning making system or some community that's important to them. So of course, every religion is a human construct. And of course, the community you're part of is a human construct, but they're meeting fundamental human needs. And therefore, we need to value the, the whole expression unless they become fundamentalist and destructive and then start claiming exclusive truth in ways that are harmful to others. Yeah, thank you. Well, David, there's a question that I ask um, all the guests on this podcast, and it's you know, given your life experience and lessons you've learned in your journey what would be something that you would invite people to pay attention to in their own lives as they're trying to build a better life for themselves and others? Wow. I had immediate responses when you were asking about polarization, but uh, this is one that would require a little more reflection. To paraphrase, what am I asking people to pay attention to in their own lives at this time? Is that correct? Yeah. I mean, something that's like, you know, been meaningful to you that like, hey, look at this, you know, or think about this. I think where I'm particularly challenged right now, and partly it was an experience uh, just a couple of days ago that brought it to mind, is when I'm interacting with folks that have a completely different worldview than I do. This was someone who thought that vaccines were all harmful and that wearing a mask was uh, destructive and that the new world order is trying to take over our lives. And I just remember blinking several times and saying, I disagree with you, but I didn't explore it, even though I wish I would have said, can you help me understand what it was in your own life that led you to take the perspective 
you now have. I, I didn't unpack, and granted it was more of a casual exchange, but I didn't unpack the reason why this individual held such a profoundly different worldview than, than I do. And I realized how hard it is to practice uh, my own teachings <laughs> because I was just earlier talking with you about the value of doing so. And I didn't, I was just stunned. And so I think I want to pay more attention in my own life to when I'm stunned by that and why am I stunned and how do I respond out of compassion while articulating my own truth. And that I did do, I, I clearly disagreed, but I didn't give her an opportunity to help me understand why she adopted such a, a distinct worldview. And I think we're going to have to do more of that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I appreciate that. I mean, I almost hear like two really powerful lessons in this. Like one is just, you know, remembering to, again, follow through with that next step of the speak your truth and then work on the connection, stay connected. And right. And then it's like, and that can be about like, let me learn more about this. Like that's the, I was thinking I would talk about like communication, just speaking and listening, you know, and it's like, we have to do both, you know, to speak your truth, then listen to see if you can help understand the other person's truth. But I think there's another powerful lesson there about, because I recognize it in my own life, that the things that I teach, I don't always practice. And Mm -hmm. sometimes I think that maybe all of us are teaching things that we are actually just trying to teach ourselves, you know? Yes. (laughs) And that could, it could be really easy to get down on yourself about that, right? Like I know that I, like when I talk about the importance of speaking your truth and I sometimes hesitate to do that or I don't always do the great listening when I want to. I could really get down on myself, like, wow, I'm a real failure. I'm not really good at doing what I teach and all these things. But there's also just this lesson about just like, okay, I'm a human learning just like everyone else and give myself exactly. a break, get back on the horse and, you know. And, well, and that's perhaps this conversation is helping me to do it, but that's uh, why I think I'm coming back to, I at least respected my dignity and her dignity in that exchange. I didn't denigrate her beliefs. I simply said, I disagree. So there was a piece of it that I held on to. And then the piece of, can you help me understand why you hold those views? Um, I chose not to go to. Mm -hmm. And so, yeah, we continue to practice the teachings. And that means we don't do it perfectly. Yeah, totally. I'm just really, gosh, dignity is really going to be the key word of this episode. Like, just, yeah, sticking, you know, honoring your own dignity um, and the dignity of the other person. Well, David, if people want to like find you or get your book, uh, where, where should they look for these things? So I teach uh, and also am in administration at Eastern Mennonite University. And if anyone wants to email me, I'd be delighted to hear from them. That is uh, david.brubaker at emu for Eastern Mennonite University.edu. I also am part of a consulting practice, actually two practices, one called cooperativebydesign.com, and it's all one word, cooperativebydesign.com, and the other called congregationalconsulting.org, and again, one word, congregationalconsulting.org, and that would be a place to read more about what we do with congregations as well as with other organizations and can be contacted through those websites as well. Wonderful. David, this has been such a pleasure. This is like such a timely conversation and it's a real joy to talk to you. Thank you. 
Thank you, Duncan. And I would just say I'm deeply impressed at how carefully you read the book and how carefully you prepared questions and how thoughtful your own reflections were. So it's a delight chatting with you. I'm glad we met by September in Tucson. Thank you. It's been a real pleasure. Thanks. Thank you so much for listening to the OmniWin Project podcast. As we wrap up, I just want to remind you about David's four-part approach to being a leader in polarization and communicating across differences. Step one, honor your dignity. Step two, honor the inherent dignity of whoever it is that you're talking to. Step three, speak your truth. And four, show them that you want to do the work to hold the connection. If you do this approach in your conversations, if you find it helpful, I would actually like to hear about it. But even more than that, I hope that will remind you to share this episode with someone. It would mean a lot to me, and it would also probably mean a lot to them. I want to express my deep gratitude for David Brubaker, not only for this conversation, but for his life-changing advice and wisdom. I highly recommend you check out his book, When the Center Does Not Hold, Leading in an Age of Polarization. And you can find more information about David and his book and all the stuff that we talked about in the episode on the episode page. That's at omniwinproject.com slash david-brewbaker. And seriously, in this case, more than most, there is a ton of amazing content on the episode page. There are links for books and videos and podcasts. And I've also posted many of the models that we talked about in this episode, such as the levels of conflict, the moral imagination, and the strategies for breaking the cycles of trauma and violence. There's that and so much more, and I highly encourage you to check it out. In fact, you can find the link to the episode page in your show notes of the podcast. Go click on it right now, bookmark it, and remember to have this amazing resource into the future. And finally, to wrap up, I just want to remind you that the podcast is only one part of the OmniWin project, and all of the content is there to help you rediscover hope for democracy and to give you the tools that you need to participate in healing our political culture. And you can read, watch, and listen to all of that content by going to omniwin.substack.com. And now, as you go into the rest of your day, I invite you to remember that you are part of co-creating the future of democracy, and we all have a role to play in the whole. Thank you for listening to the OmniWin Project podcast. Have a great day.